I'm very thankful to be with you again tonight. I'm glad you're here too. And I'm excited to uh, talk to you about something that sometimes we don't want to talk about, especially if we're the one who has doubts. But I hope that this can be a helpful study if you're someone who's had questions or has had doubts. And I also want to acknowledge that maybe not everybody has had the same type of doubt. And so maybe this is difficult for you because it's abstract and, and you've just never questioned if there's a God. You've never questioned if the Bible is uh, legitimate or not. And you've, you know, you've just been uh, very strong in your convictions for the entirety of your life. Then I think that's wonderful. And I wish that I could be like you. Uh, unfortunately, I've had doubts, and I've had times where instead of wanting to talk about it, I would rather just try to bury it, and I would tell you that that is a very unhealthy place to be. And so, God bless you if you've never had a doubt, but I hope what this study can be for you is something that is helpful so that when you talk to others, that you can be a listening ear, one who is sympathetic to uh, their struggles, because there will be a time, as the scripture says, we are to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. There will be a time when you might find yourself struggling and that person is now the one helping you. So let's begin, shall we? Uh, we want to begin in Matthew chapter 14, verse 31, and I'll paint the picture as this picture is also painting on the board here. And that is about Peter. And here he is. He's uh, just let go of the boat, right? So his eyes are fixed on Jesus. And uh, no matter what's going on around him in this moment, the winds are blowing and the water splashing, but his eyes are fixed on Jesus until, as the scriptures say, he does start to look around and he sees the wind and the waves. And uh, suddenly he is not fixed so firmly on Jesus, and he starts to sink. And so when he calls out, Lord, save me, and Jesus reaches and pulls him out of the water, uh, Jesus offers this question to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And uh, as you can tell, this PowerPoint may be a little bit off in its presentation because I built it on a Mac, and now I'm presenting it on a PC. And... Uh, so there you go. That's why the little E there is in the wrong place. Hopefully that won't happen too many times. This scripture, uh, it's easy to take it personally, right? And so we, we sometimes will apply this story to our lives. So we'll say something like, so when you encounter the storms of life and whatever's got you down, uh, don't be like Peter and have doubts, but keep your eyes on Jesus. I don't know if this narrative was in the New Testament so that we could apply it that way. Really, I think what this narrative is meant to show is Jesus had the power over the wind and the waves. And the question that the disciples ask afterwards is legitimate. What sort of a man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? But we can't help ourselves sometimes by applying it to us. And so we may beat ourselves up. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Oh, me of little faith, why would I doubt? You see, doubt can be a dirty word. Uh, sometimes it implies weakness or little or lacking of faith, that, that you're pitiful. 
compared to everyone else. You're not like everyone else. And as some of us were talking about at dinner tonight, it's easy to be really hard on yourself because you look around and everybody else seems to have figured it all out except you, right? So, for example, you're looking at me, and I know I don't have a tie on, but I have a jacket, and I've got my shirt tucked in, I'm wearing slacks, and so it's easy because I'm wearing the fancy clothes to, to make it seem like I've got it all figured out. And sometimes we come to church, we look around, and everybody just looks like they've got it figured out. They're dressed nice, and they're, uh, they're, they're speaking nice. They don't, they don't seem to struggle with what I have. I'm the only one who's going through this. And suddenly, if we had doubts, then we're the only one who has doubts. And I don't want you to feel that way tonight. So here's an outline of the study. I have four main questions I want to ask and answer with you. Number one, I want to ask, what is doubt? And if we can kind of have a foundation built on what it is, then it's going to be helpful to answer the next question. What scriptures can help us? Third, how can I overcome doubts when I have them? And I know those are three very simple questions, so I decided to fill the rest of the space with a very complicated question. Sorry, that's a lot of words. Uh, how could we foster a sense of trust and truth within our local church community so that when one of us has doubt, the other can respond appropriately? If you're taking notes, you can furiously try to write that down. I challenge you to. Uh, however, it's a bit longer than the rest, but I think it's a really important question to ask, and that is, uh, if I struggle, how do you prepare to bear that burden so that when you struggle, I can prepare to help you? And hopefully we can answer that together. So let's begin. Uh, what is doubt? Now, doubt comes from a Greek word, diakrino, and it's used 19 times in the New Testament. Now, it is translated into different English words. So here's an example. It's translated as to decide, to dispute, misgivings, passing judgment, taking issue with, or wavering. And so suddenly we might be wondering, okay, maybe I thought I knew what doubt was, but now I doubt that I know what it means. And so I would challenge you with this, that context always determines how to properly translate it. And so the guys who sat down with the Greek texts to uh, translate them into English use the context to make the appropriate decision. And so I would like to distill what doubt is biblically into this phrase. Uh, a doubter is someone who is struggling to accept something. And the context really uh, will help us. They're either struggling to accept it because of ignorance, they, they don't know, and so they doubt because they're coming from a place of a lack of knowledge, or they're struggling to accept it because of rebellion. And they know better, but they, they're just they're doing everything they can to question, is this really God's will? And uh, these are the two main groups that the word doubt gets put into. So here's a scripture. It says in James 1 verse 5, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. My question is this. How does that scripture make you feel? When I read that, 
Verse six, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea. Suddenly I start to feel guilty. Well, I shouldn't doubt. I shouldn't ask questions. And what I'd like to suggest to you is that this type of doubt is one who is coming at it from one who is struggling to accept something and doesn't want to know God's will and doesn't want to obey God's will. And that's different from the person who lacks knowledge and simply needs training in, what's, in what God's will is. And so tonight, if you are doubting, coming from a place of not understanding, then I don't want you to have that guilty feelings that this scripture is intended to provide. However, if you are doubting the will of God because you're coming from a place that you just don't want to obey God, then this scripture should cause a little bit of uh, maybe a not-so-good feeling as we read through it. So in order to deconstruct doubt, I think we're going to need to learn just a bit about deconstruction. Now, I'm going to go ahead and present this as a general overview, and it could be that you already know everything there is to know about deconstruction. But maybe someone doesn't know uh, what that phrase means, and especially how it's being used in popular culture today. And so uh, bear with me for a moment as we talk about deconstruction. Now, to deconstruct does not mean to demolish. Like, we're not going to deconstruct the building by tearing it down. Rather, it means to break down or analyze something, especially the words in a work of fiction or nonfiction, to discover its true significance. But not its true significance according to the author. Its true significance according to you, the reader. And so deconstruction was... Uh, part of the postmodern social movement, and it applied to literature. It also applies in the field uh, that I, I work in part-time in, in therapy and in counseling. And so this image here is intended to show that sometimes we have some negative thoughts. And so in order to overcome that negative thought, we have to deconstruct all the different parts of it. And then by deconstructing it, we can better understand uh, why we felt that way. So, um, you know, an example might be that somebody feels like their parents hate them, right? And so they, they grow up with this understanding that their parents hate them, and then they go into therapy, and the therapist says, we need to deconstruct that. What we're going to do is we're going to break down all of these reasons that you feel like your parents hate you. Well, maybe uh, dad worked long hours, and, and maybe uh, mom was stressed, and, and by getting all of these pieces set aside, suddenly, oh, I realize they, don't, they didn't hate me, right? We've deconstructed that hatred. The problem is that that idea and that concept has been hijacked. And so now people use deconstruction to deconstruct their Christian faith. Now, I know some of you are new to the faith, and so I'm not going to be very specific about where to go to find this, and I can't stop you from going to look at it. But I did just want to warn you, you get on social media and it's going to be very, very easy to find a lot of videos that are very popular right now where people are talking about how they deconstructed. They deconstructed out of Christianity. They have this uh, issue, this, this hidden assumption, this bias. And so then they decided to break down their faith and then they started deconstructing it to a point where they no longer believe. And so they get on social media and talk about how they're no longer a Christian. I'd like to give you a couple examples of what this actually looks like. So these are people who are quite famous in the, uh, you know, 
Christian-oriented circles, right? Um, and one of them is a musician, and one of them was an author who wrote books. And after a while, they deconstructed out of the faith, and this is what they had to say about their process. I know this may be a little small. Sorry if you can't read it uh, along with me. If not, just listen. This person says, How many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be love, yet send four billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They can also be some of the most beautiful people and loving people. But it's not for me. I'm not in that anymore. I want genuine truth, not the I just believe it kind of truth. Now, what's this person done? He's taken several issues that he has with his faith and kind of blown them out, deconstructed them. And since he can't make sense of them, then he won't make sense of the core, which is his faith in Christ. And as a result of that, he's decided to just walk away. Now, I would like to just comment briefly about this final phrase. I want genuine truth, not the I just believe it kind of truth. And friends, if you are trying to help someone and your answer is just fake it till you make it, that's not an appropriate answer. It's not an appropriate way to help someone. And so I would challenge you that if, in fact, uh, you're telling someone to just believe it until you can make it, then that person may burn out, and I would like you to be genuine with them. Now, here's another person's deconstruction. He says, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measures that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. To my Christian friends, I'm grateful for your prayers. Don't take it personally if I don't immediately return calls. I can't join in your mourning. I don't view this moment negatively. I feel very much alive and awake and surprisingly hopeful. I believe with my sister Julian that all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. Now again, you and I, as we love the Lord and we want the Lord's people to just be faithful in the Lord, when, when one of our loved ones leaves, it is a painful process for us. And we assume that this person has a void that's missing because they've left. And I share these with you because as people deconstruct, uh, they're filling that with something else. And, and sometimes it's hard for us to see. And it's hard for us to understand uh, what they've gone through. The problem is, I, I think uh, as we deconstruct doubt, we've really got to put people uh, in one of these circles. And this middle ground right here is, is the word doubt. And some people don't understand and others don't want to understand. And they will use the word doubt. And what we have to know is, what are they really talking about? Are they really talking about how they don't understand the faith? And so they're asking questions of, where does God come from? Or where does the Bible come from? Or are they asking questions from a, a skeptical uh, perspective of, I don't want this to be real. and I'm going to throw anything and everything I have at it to be so. So we're going to do the same thing and kind of blow up doubt and try to deconstruct it and see that behind that word is several different views 
or several different opinions that are uh, really at play here. So the, the, the way that I have uh, organized this study, I see three different types of doubt. The first type is an intellectual doubt. That's somebody who uh, struggles to respond to rational questions about God's character, the consistency of his word. And I'd like to give you a couple examples that I've dealt with, and maybe you've heard ones like these as well. This is an intellectual doubt. How can a loving God call for genocide of humanity in the flood? Now, maybe that's emotional, but that is an intellectual question, right? One that we should ponder. Why would God destroy so many people in the flood? Here's another question. How can you trust these documents that are seemingly so riddled with errors? Again, that's not asked in a highly emotional state. This person is interested in the consistency of the Bible. And so this type of doubt is asking uh, intellectual questions. Another type of doubt, a different kind, is emotional. And that's when a person is struggling to make sense of God's character or his word while they're enduring a strong emotional and or irrational sentiment. And listen, irrational is like a word that we throw around at each other when we're trying to insult. And I don't mean that as an insult. It's just at times people are going through a struggle and so they're thinking from the heart, emotionally, irrationally, rather than with their head. And so this type of doubt is different. The questions might be, God didn't answer my prayer uh, to save my child, therefore I can't believe he's real anymore. Now we could try to respond rationally to that person, but they're coming from a different place. That's the point I'm going to try to make. Another one that I've heard is my pastor uh, was a hypocrite and uh, therefore I won't believe in God anymore because this great man of faith fell so far. It happens a lot. You get on the news of any kind and I bet once a week, it's almost like they're looking for it. They're, they're, they're hungry to broadcast uh, men of faith and how far they fall. A third type of doubt is a moral doubt. And this is that one that I think oftentimes does happen more in the I don't want to understand type of a doubt. But that simply is a struggle to accept God's word based on willful actions that contradict it. Now, I do think it is possible to have moral doubts that come from a good place. Uh, let me read a couple real quick and, and then I'll add a third on my own. Uh, here's what somebody might say. I don't really see what's wrong with drinking. And I don't really think God cares either. So this person is doubting, but it doesn't seem like they're very interested in, in learning. They're just from a place of willful ignorance. Another moral doubt might be, well, that command's cultural. It's not for us. Therefore, I don't have to obey it. And instead of maybe studying what the scripture says, they're using an argument about culture to make up for it. You know, there's a moral doubts that people can have because coming from a place rather of ignorance than um, rebellion. And I'll just give this example. I, I believe in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the, the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where it talks about uh, the covering, which is a woman's glory, a woman's hair, uh, that that scripture refers to women having long uncut hair and men having uh, short or cut hair. And as I've preached that sermon in various places, I can preach it here too if you want, um, as I preach that in various places, I have a lot of sisters that come up and say, you know, 
I wasn't in the, raised in the church. This is all new for me. But I remember after I got, I got baptized, someone came up and said, okay, now you have to stop cutting your hair. They never told me why. Just said you had to. And so I did because I just thought that's what we do. And it wasn't until we studied this sermon that I, I realized it. And so that person may have a, a genuine moral doubt. Why are we doing this? I don't understand it. And it's our duty to help them at, this time, at that time. So how do we respond to doubts? Well, now that we've kind of deconstructed it, I hope that these uh, thoughts make sense. If doubts are not all the same, then our responses are not to be all the same. So friend, if you're the one that's never doubted, now I'm kind of talking to you, uh, if you've always been strong in the faith and someone comes to you with the doubt, it's helpful to take a moment and break down where's this doubt coming from and you may respond differently depending on each person. For example, when you respond to intellectual doubts, it may mean that you need to take some time to study things that you hadn't studied before and now you've got to read a book or you've got to check out uh, several different scriptures and then sit with this person for maybe an hour or two or three and, and just work through the issue. How do you respond to an emotional doubt? Well, it, I think it should involve Bible study. But instead of maybe reading up on all the intellectual answers, sometimes it's about sitting with someone in prayer, letting them process emotionally what's going on in their life. Responding to moral doubts may be a little saltier. Somebody doesn't want to obey God and they're throwing out questions to discredit God, then it may mean that the time we spend with them is answering their questions, but also holding their feet to the fire, so to speak, about uh, what God's word does say. Now, what they all have in common is this. We always respond. We always respond. We don't neglect we don't leave it, uh, you know, tabled for a future. We always respond. This is what I was talking about in the closing announcements last night. As I mentioned, uh, Flavel Yeakley, a social scientist, did uh, statistical analysis of over 2,000 people and why they left the Church of Christ, and one of the number one reasons was neglect. So in the topic of doubt, people that are scared and afraid to share this, and then they take a risk they're vulnerable with someone and they say, man, I've been having some real questions about the communion. I mean, we're all like one cup, one cup, one cup. I just don't get it. And maybe they come down hard. How can you not see this? How can you? It's right here in the Bible, right? And so we have to respond. We always respond. But what we're going to look at now is appropriate response. And it is appropriate to respond differently to different types of doubt. Jude chapter 1, verse 20 through 23, we're in the second question. The second question is what scriptures can help us? It says, But you, beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now, I'm going to structure this into the three different categories of people who need help, right? Number one is those uh, we are supposed to have mercy on doubters. We're supposed to save people who are in the middle of the fire, the moral fire. And then there's others who are, are kind of far gone, 
And we're to have mercy and fear, but we're to hate the garments stained with sin. Now, I know that may be small, but I want to read to you what Adam Clark says about this scripture. It's kind of old school. So, you know, this is King James or Shakespeare would be the equivalent. And I struggle sometimes with reading that. So bear with me. Ye are not to deal alike with all those who have been seduced by false teachers. Ye are to make a difference between those who have been led away by weakness and imprudence and those who by the pride and arrogance of their hearts have separated themselves from the church and become its inveterate enemies. So this is not a new thought that I'm presenting to you. People who study this and read it see there's, there's different types of doubter. There's different types of people that are struggling. So let's break these down, uh, these three, and uh, talk about them. And I'm going to go in reverse order. The first one I want to talk about is those uh, were to show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained with sin. Now, what I'm going to suggest to you is that we are not to be the offended sea turtle. Oops. <laughs> I can't believe they're going through that. However... We are to hate the garment stained with sin. What type of a person is that anyway? This is a brother or sister who has fully embraced sin or error. And they're asking questions from a place of justification. They're going to do whatever it takes to justify that sin. Well, how are we to respond? Well, as this scripture says, by continuing to show mercy, right? But also with... Uh, fear. And to show mercy with fear means to be consistent about what the Bible teaches, clearly showing that sin leads to damnation, that this lifestyle leads to ruin, and that we don't want to have any part of it. Romans chapter 1, verse 32 says that uh, it forbids us, rather, from approving of sinful practices, not just doing them, but approving. Of them as well. So, for those who are that far gone, we warn and we admonish and we invite them to make things right. Another group of people that have doubts are those, as it says, we save others by snatching them out of the fire. What type of person is that? This is a brother or sister who's in danger of giving themselves over to erroneous teaching or sinful behavior, and they're asking questions, they have doubts but maybe they haven't taken the plunge into complete deconstruction. How are we to help them? Well, as it says, we're snatching them out of the fire. When somebody's in the middle of a moral problem, there are times when we may be able to delicately shepherd them through, but there's also times when their house is burning down. And you're more worried, or you should be rather, more worried about getting them out they may be worried about their feelings. And friends, I want you to think about that, that if this is a moment of danger and we're trying to rescue them. And so maybe that means morally we're shaking them. We're trying to wake them up and remind them of the truths of the Scripture. As I mentioned last night, uh, Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, I believe he's a great example of somebody who was in the middle of the fire. And Peter didn't mince words. He said, your money is going to perish with you. And as a result of that, this being snatched out, he said, oh, pray for me. And he immediately repented of his sins. Finally, there are those who have mercy, or rather, uh, there are those who doubt, and we're simply to have mercy on them. And this command may seem to be the clearest, but it is a little bit more complicated than we might think. 
there are some scholars who believe that those who doubt are talking about those who are ignorant. There are others that believe it's those that are willfully ignorant. Whichever way that it may be, we're to have mercy on them. We're to answer their questions, to spend time with them and come to the truth. Having mercy can mean a lot of things, pity, concern, gentleness, and compassion, but it most certainly does not mean to permit sin or to permit others to remain in that doubt. Our mercy is to give one another the tools to overcome doubt and the sin that so often follows. Now listen, this phrase and the scripture I'm about to put up there is very important because I've struggled with this as somebody whose confrontation isn't my forte. So I would rather not confront things. It's easy for me to say, well, having mercy just means we're gonna love them back in. And we can love people back into doing what's right. But sometimes having mercy is more than just loving them in. It means we're giving them whatever tool is necessary for them to overcome sin. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. The truth always has to be part of your conversation. As we work on doubts together, we're not going to celebrate doubt. Rather, we're going to help people overcome doubts. Here's a question. Number three, how can I overcome doubts? And this text may be kind of small, uh, I'll do my best to, to summarize it as quickly as I can. This is a new part of this sermon for me. So I've given this sermon a few times. Uh, but I have a, a dear friend who wrote about her doubts. And I've decided to just lift it, put it in my sermon. She, in a, the, the title of this article that I read that she wrote was uh, How I Deconstructed from My Faith Yet Remained Faithful. And I thought, oh, I need to read this. And after I read it, I thought, I think Christians need to see this as much as, as anyone else, that there are people in the church who have gone through this process and they've come out on the other side stronger. So if you have ever had doubts, then I'm going to offer this to you and then I'm going to offer a scripture that I think summarizes it. And uh, so bear with me as we go through this one by one. This uh, sister said the first thing that she did to overcome doubts was she kept going to church. She said that she didn't always want to be there, but she decided, I'm not going to give up on that. She needed it in her life. She says, I kept reading my Bible, and she didn't devour entire books or testaments in a sitting, but she did try to stay consistent to reading the Word. She says, I kept praying. I didn't pray long prayers, and some of them were silent, some were pleading, some were angry, but I tried to keep my communication with God open. I stopped consuming deconstruction content. I unfollowed people on social media who always talked about deconstruction. I didn't watch YouTube videos where people explained how they abandoned their faith. Even though I was curious, I knew it wasn't helpful. I asked for encouragement from someone I trusted. We may talk about this more this weekend. I don't think it's necessary that you tell everyone every single problem you have, but I do think it's important that you tell someone, and she found that to be helpful as well. I reduced the number of people who had influence over me. Okay? I spent more time with my husband and children. 
I took it one day at a time. I quit things that were keeping me busy and burnt out. And finally, I examined and was radically honest with myself. I acknowledged pain, my own flaws, and resentment that affected my perception of God and the church and faith. Friends, I think this list is incredible in that it's simple, it's manageable, it's doable. There's been times when I've wondered, is this what it's all about? Are these people who I thought they were? And you know what? People fail. And those we love often let us down. But remember, we're not in the church of brother so-and-so. We're not in the church of sister so-and-so. We're in the church of Jesus Christ. I want you to remember that. You're in Jesus' church. And you will likely fail one another in this congregation. In the congregation I'm a part of, I know for a fact I have failed some of my brethren and, and they have failed me. But we don't serve each other. We serve Jesus. And so I beg you to consider in times where you may not want to keep that practice alive of going to church, reading your Bible, praying to God. And it's just like any relationship we have uh, uh, that are important, a husband and wife, parent, child, best friends. Those relationships die when the communication valve shuts off. And if, even if it's a trickle, if that communication can stay open, there's hope. I think a great scripture that uh, I thought of as I read through this list was James chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. It says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's some uh, strong statements in there about how we need to live the life, right? That we need to be morally pure. And I think that's part of this. But right there in the middle is a promise. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The times that I have struggled the most, I do have to perform an assessment. The times that others have struggled and they've come to me, I perform the same assessment with them. How's your Bible reading? How's your prayer life? How's your church attendance? It's like a, you go to a doctor for a checkup and they ask you your blood pressure, your weight. They're asking those things. Maybe uh, one of them is off and then that leads to this and it leads to this and then we find the cause. And so I have found it time and time again when people are struggling, it's some of these basic things and so how do you overcome doubts? Draw near to God. And this is a promise. He will draw near to you. Number four, final point. How can we foster a sense of trust and truth within our local church community so that when one of us does have doubt, the other can respond appropriately? So I have three uh, answers to that question based on the scriptures. Number one, we can foster trust and truth by making space for hard questions. May we be a people that feel comfortable saying, I don't know. I hope we can. I hope you feel comfortable saying, I don't know, but I can find out. Instead of feeling personally attacked when somebody asks a difficult question. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7 and 8, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. 
Jesus three times is communicating to his followers when it comes to, to communication with God. God wants us to ask. He wants us to seek. And you know, there's times when, when maybe uh, we don't understand God's will. But you know what? You're not the only one who's ever been at that point. You can go to Exodus chapter 3 and 4, and you've got Moses who is talking directly to God, and, and God is telling him what he wants Moses to do. And four times Moses is saying, well, what about this? And what about that? I'm not the right guy. I can't speak. They're not going to listen to me. I don't even know what I'm supposed to uh, call you to these people. All these questions. What's he doing? He's from a place of doubt, he's trying to find answers so that he can move on. Right? Paul, as we talked about last night, pleaded three times with the Lord, take this away from me, please. I don't necessarily would call that a place of doubt, but he's calling on the Lord for help and the Lord's giving him the answer, no, and Paul's not satisfied, so he keeps asking for it three times, take this away. May we always make space for asking hard questions. Penelope is still not satisfied with my answer for her question, who made God? <laughs> she's nine years old and I keep trying to answer it and, and she's just not satisfied with it yet. I'm glad she asks. I hope that when she's 16 or 25 or 70 and I'm you know, 98 years old, if she's still not satisfied that she would come find me and ask dad, I still wanna know where God came from. Here's the second one. We can foster trust and truth by not making doubt into an idol. I think it's very important for us in this discussion to remember that doubt uh, is not a trophy to be awarded or claimed. The reason I say that is because those who have deconstructed have made doubt into their idol as though they are better than those who have not doubted because they've asked the hard questions that these people never asked or didn't want to ask. And so somehow that makes them better. And I've seen it time and time again that pride commingled with doubt leads people astray like nothing else. There are no evidences that I can find in the Bible where doubt is considered good and wholesome as far as on its own. Now, I don't think that there's uh, scriptures that say it's wrong to question God, as hopefully we've seen tonight. But what we do find is that truth is valued as what we are to pursue. John chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Not grace and doubt, but grace and truth. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 31, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truth frees. Truth washes away ignorance. And so may we never get to a point where we turn doubt into an idol. Finally, uh, we can foster trust and truth by cultivating a culture of confession. And I have a sermon based on this. I may or may not be preaching it this weekend. I haven't flipped the coin yet. 
But James chapter 5, verse 15 says, The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. The idea here is, if we have built a culture in our congregation, whether it be a public confession or whether it be one-on-one, it's a lot easier to be vulnerable with each other and say things like, I don't know about that one cup. Where's that coming from? And then we can talk honestly about such scriptures. Okay, here's my final scripture and then I'll offer a gospel invitation. Then maybe we can go outside and enjoy those fireworks. Mark chapter 9. There's an account of a man who brings uh, his child to Jesus. Don't look too closely at this image. Looks like he's healing a man with a beard. And so uh, I want you to imagine it's a child instead of a bearded man. But in this, this account, I want you to put yourself into the shoes of the father. Okay, so before we read, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the father. Let's read a little bit. Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. Then he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought him the boy. And when the spirit saw him, It immediately convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled around foaming at the mouth. This is quite a scene. There's an argument the disciples are having with this father and with some Pharisees who are there. And it's kind of, you know, their uh, pride has been hurt because they couldn't cast out this demon. And there's probably some uh uh type of an argument going on here. So Jesus has to say, well, what's, what's, what's happening? And this is what's happening. Jesus asks some more questions. As this child goes rigid, this demon has made him go rigid. And so Jesus asks his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into the water and it, or into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. I'm sensing desperation. Desperation of a lifelong attempt to keep his son safe. Jesus' response is one part humorous and the other part convicting. He says, and Jesus said to him, if you can. Notice that This man is coming from a place of doubt. He didn't say, Lord, I I know you can. He said, if. And Jesus highlights that. If. If. All things are possible to the one who believes. And I think it's a rebuke to the man. Now Jesus is tender and compassionate to these types of persons 
So it's not a rebuke that's intended like it would be to a Pharisee. If, if you would believe, all things are possible. And this isn't the end of the narrative, but I just want to show you the man's response. Because I think this is the heart of what we should be like whenever we have doubts. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I'm just thankful that he had the willingness to admit that to Jesus. That he would actually ask, help my unbelief. Instead of getting defensive and coming up with a reason, he simply brings it to the master. I want to. Will you help me? And that's the invitation I want to leave with you tonight. If you find yourself ever in a place of doubting, the prayer that you can offer, Lord, I want to believe. Help my unbelief. Ask that to the Lord instead of walking away from him. And remember what the promise was in James chapter 4. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Brothers and sisters, I hope this is a helpful Bible study. I look forward to having conversation with you about it. Uh, if you have questions and if you have comments, I always take the feedback on these uh, sermons. And as I give them at other places, uh, then I can utilize that. So if you have scriptures and ideas that you feel would be helpful to improve this, then please, let's keep talking about it. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.